Would you pray one more time with me this morning before we get going? God, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, Thank you that you have once again let the sun rise. You've brought it up, reminding us that your steadfast love, God, is uh, fresh every morning for us. God, that you are the one that enters into covenant with your people and that you proclaim and sing your love and joy over us every single day to renew our souls, to renew our minds, to make fresh again our our joy and our love for you. God, I thank you that you have given us your word that we have already opened and get to open again yet this morning. Uh, what a privilege, what an honor, and what a joy it is, God, to hear you speak. And so I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. My rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So your bulletin was uh, a bit of a typo. I saw that some of the verses don't exist that he put in there. Um, but Lamentations 3 is the text this morning. And verses, I'm going I'm to be 19 through, yeah. We good? Thumbs up. Lamentations chapter 3, verses uh, 19 through 24, not 22 to 26. We'll just discount your bulletin. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to be reading these a few verses, then we'll go back. Jeremiah says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. I would... Upon reading those few verses and that little chunk, I'd venture to say that there's probably a good portion, especially in this room, that have at least heard or know this section of Lamentations fairly well. If you've heard the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it's drawn from from these verses. And every time I've pretty much ever heard someone quote from Lamentations, it comes back to this chunk of uh, the the book. But it does have five chapters. uh, And it's very critical as in almost any aspect of God's Word, to look back and see the context in which these treasured verses of Scripture were given. Like a lot of Old Testament Scriptures, especially, there's some, some great hope and a good ring to some verses and, and a great uh, a joy that you get from reading them. And a lot of times they get uh, taken uh, out of their context and out of their context and then it comes to uh, almost be a meaningless verse and we could go to some examples, but I don't want to ruin anyone's coffee cups this morning. So we'll stick with these. And, and it's very important just for the meaning of this text to be able to go back and say, what's happening when the, uh, the man of God, Jeremiah, is, the book is Lamentations. He's lamenting and he's crying out to God. And you see the first few verses where he's in a great distress and despair to a point where there's like an angst in his soul that you can feel. And then there's a, a turn in verse 21 where there's a, a, a bright light that shines into the darkness. 
And so you, you look back, and I want us to see and paint a little bit of a picture about what is the scene around Jeremiah when he's writing this and crying this out to God. What's happening around him that's causing this affliction? And, and what exactly does he call to mind that brings forth uh, the, the light of hope and the darkness of his agony? And we'll, we'll go back a little bit farther, but I just want to start in, in chapter 1 of Lamentations and, and read a few verses the very beginning of this book, to just kind of set the, the stage for what he's writing about. In verse 3 of Lamentations chapter 1, it simply says this, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So the, 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 the scene and the picture is not, Jeremiah is not in, in agony because his, his finances are bad or his health goes wrong, although those things did happen to him. But the, the scene is, is painted here that he is weeping over a specific thing in this, in this section is that Judah has gone into exile. There's an affliction on the people of God. If you flip over to chapter 2, he says this in, in verses 1 through 11. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In His wrath, He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down... In fierce anger, all the might of Israel, he has withdrawn from them his right hand and the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord, as on the day of festival, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth, put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. And Jeremiah says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. We'll stop there for a second. I, I, it's not very hard to grasp from those 11, 10, first 10 verses the scene that is causing the distress. 
I'm not sure any one of us would volunteer to have those verses written about us. Written about our nation or our people or our family. There is repeatedly over and over and over again, God is very clearly bringing a judgment, a just judgment in fury and anger upon His people. So if you go back, this is about the time when Israel's already went into captivity in the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom, has been led into idolatry uh, from king after king after king has led the people into idolatry and blasphemy and rebellion against God. And it's come to a point where God says, I'm going to cut off the idolatry from my people. And He says, I'm going to use a, a pretty terrible nation of Babylon to come in and sweep away my people into captivity and to bring a destructive judgment upon the land, upon the altar, the temple, the walls, the cities, everything. They're going to come in a ruthless nation led by the hand of the Lord to destroy everything that Israel over the past hundreds of years has built up originally to honor God and then to defile and this, this scene that Jeremiah sees, he responds with, My eyes are spent with weeping, and my stomach churns, and my bile is poured out to the ground. And he says, Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's the cause of the lament. That's the cause of the, the despair that we read in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He's looking at this and he's seeing a scene that he can hardly grasp. And it's causing his soul to be led into a depression and a despair. That he, if you read the whole first part of chapter 3, it's, he can barely even stand to stay alive in the midst of it. And then a couple verses later in Lamentations chapter 2, God says this um, as, a, as a divine commentary here through Jeremiah of what's going on. It says, The Lord God has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity and He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And that is a very interesting note because what that just said is every heart-wrenching, gut-turning thing that we just read is actually God being faithful to His Word. That's going to be a very, very crucial point to remember as Jeremiah turns and begins to stir up hope within himself. Is that everything that's going on there's a remnant of people that can see everything that's going on is actually God being faithful and true to Himself. Who He is and what He has said. And I'll show you that in one area. If you turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's a, li a little bit more of, of the... Uh, a, Judgment before we turn to the, the great hope uh, that Jeremiah sees. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
This is when Moses, before they go into the promised land, Moses is putting before the people, he says, I put before you life and death, blessing and curse. He says, basically, here's the blessings if you go in here and obey God and obey His voice and worship Him alone. And here's the curses if you don't. And in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15, just verse 15, he says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I am that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he follows with curse after curse after curse. And we're going to skip down a little bit. Uh, So I'm going to start back in verse 47 of Deuteronomy 28 because it gets very specific about what God is foreseeing. If you notice that in verse 15, he says, if you will not. But in verse 28, it's almost as if God from the future looks back and says, because, in verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. In hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything, He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. From the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young, shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you, <clears throat> leave you grain, wine, or oil, the incense of your herds or the young of your flock until... They have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. They shall shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And if you skip a few more verses to verse 62 through 65, he says, Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. You shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither... You nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. I find it absolutely incredible that over a, probably not quite, almost a thousand years before this event takes place that Jeremiah is witnessing in Lamentations, God, through Moses, already spoke it. So when you go in, this is what you're going to end up doing, and this is what I'm going to end up doing in response to that. And when this all takes place, you and I would think that they have uh, uh, this written down somewhere that someone would look and say, God already said this was going to happen. Babylon's come in, they've destroyed our walls, they've uh, uh, taken all of our cattle and our fields, and they've taken our, our young ones and our women into captivity. All this stuff God said almost a thousand years before was going to happen. 
And no one looked at it and said, maybe we should turn back to him. I think this is what's adding to the anguish of Jeremiah as he's seeing this despair and seeing this take place, thinking he already warned you about this generations ago. And the stubborn, stiff-necked people continued on into the idolatry because they didn't take it seriously. I know they didn't take it seriously because if you, if you turn forward again, almost the Lamentations to the book of Jeremiah... We're, this is the last turning expedition before we land back there. If you turn back to, to Jeremiah chapter 5, this is an insight into how the people responded. An insight to, if you remember, Jeremiah was sent at the beginning. He was sent by God with the word of God to a rebellious and stubborn people to turn them back. And God, gracious as he is, told Jeremiah, like he did other prophets, they're not going to listen to you. There's probably, I can't imagine a much more disheartening word than God saying, go preach to this people, but they're not going to listen. But they don't, but they do listen to somebody. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 10 through 18, he God says this, Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They've spoken falsely of the Lord, and they have said, He will do nothing. They have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. 13, the prophets will become wind. The, the word is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from a faroe house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know. Nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors, and they shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with a sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. In the midst of this, people under the judgment of God for their rebellion, there's prophets that rise up and say, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see the sword or famine. And these same people, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, mock Jeremiah, they end up putting Jeremiah in prison, and they afflict the man of God that has the true word you can begin to see the anguish of the soul of this man that he's watching God bringing conse- warning people about the consequences of rebellion and sin. He's been mocked and afflicted by these people for trying to turn them back to God. And in the midst of this, people are not only being rebellious, but they're also speaking false words on behalf of God. 
it kind of, it, maybe it's ringing in your ears, may have just described in, in a way the nation in which you find yourself. Where, where Jesus warns a church in Laodicea that is, uh, that is comfortable and prosperous and wealthy that say we need of, have need of nothing. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. And we have uh, prophets, just like they have prophets, that rise up and say, we don't need to worry about the, the sin in the camp. We don't need to worry about the idolatry that runs rampant. He will do nothing. And so Jeremiah is in distress. Jeremiah is in affliction physically and emotionally and mentally and in his soul. But in verse 21 of Lamentations chapter 3, sorry, we're back there. In verse 21 of Lamentations chapter 3, he says this, and we read it earlier, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And there is something ingrained in the mind of Jeremiah that is going to restore hope to his soul. There's something that he already has, because he's recalling it to mind, there's something that he already has stamped on his forehead that's going to bring the despair and the anguish and the depression and the affliction. It's going to bring uh, the light of hope into his situation. And this is universally true for whatever despair and affliction may come our way, as that is what we are promised as humans, that there will be suffering and that there will be affliction and that there will be persecution. And in the midst of the despair of the soul or the affliction of the body, there's something that he calls to mind. And there's one reality that anchors his soul in hope. And it's this, as we go on, it's the nature and promises of God. If you look in the next two, few verses just point out three things that describe God. No, in the midst of this, Jeremiah does not turn to anything else but who God is. He says in verse 22 to 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's three attributes of God in this that bring the light of hope into the darkest of dungeons, right? The steadfast love of God, the mercy of God, and the faithfulness of God. And I think the greatest need in God's church and amongst God's people is to know who He is. If you don't know who God is, how will you recall these things to mind in the day of despair or in the day of affliction? And these three attributes of God are the rock on which will bring Jeremiah or any man out of any circumstance. And he says this, the steadfast love is the first one. And in Hebrew, you probably maybe have heard the word of chesed. It is a word used throughout the... Uh, Old Testament, sometimes translated loving kindness. 
I like steadfast love. It's basically the love that describes the covenant love that God has with His people. It is the determined will of God to be for the good of His people. This is when God enters into a covenant with man and says, I am for you under any circumstance. It's God entering in and saying, I'm in this. It's when, right, it's when Abram was making a covenant with God. If you remember in, in, in Genesis 12, when he split the animals in two, and it was a sign that when two people made a covenant, they would walk through and basically say, we're both entering into this covenant, and if either one of us fails, uh, let this be done to us. And you remember that God walked through twice while Abraham, he put to sleep, saying, I am entering into this covenant with you, and I'm going to be the one that sustains this covenant, and I'm going to be the one who upholds this covenant, and I'm going to be the one who will not let you go. And this brought to my mind, if you um, just listen to these words that you've heard many times in Romans chapter 8, verse 32 and following, he said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him gracious, also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress and persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? Everything of that is happening in Lamentations at this time. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing Jeremiah calls to mind here is God's steadfast covenant love. There is not a better anchor for your soul in doubt or despair or affliction, any kind of suffering, than to know that no circumstance on earth or in heaven or below the earth can rip you out of the hands of God. Jeremiah is recalling an attribute of who God is to say His steadfast love never ceases. You never get to the end of God holding on to that which He has promised to hold on to. You never get to the end of God saying that I'm working all things together for the good of those that, that love God and are called according to His purpose. All things for all of your life are being brought and God is using them to form you into the image of Christ and He's going to be for your good until the day that you meet Him in heaven. And he goes on and he says of God that his mercies never come to an end. These mercies are often translated also uh, uh, compassions. A.W. Tozer says this about God's mercy. He says, Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and exhaustible energy within the divine nature with, which disposes God to be actively compassionate. 
If we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it will someday cease to be. He begins to recall in the midst of this turmoil the loving kindness or the steadfast love and God's compassion that He's shown and promises to show to His people. Nehemiah 9, chapter 30 and 31 recalls this and he says, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them nor, or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. In your mercies you did not make an end to them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. It's interesting that if you think even in the midst of Israel coming underneath this judgment and destruction, God, if you, if you followed all in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah, God in His mercy is not, has promised to not make an end to these people that He could very easily make an end to. He's keeping a remnant of people and He's keeping His promises to His people and instead of bringing absolute, complete destructing, destruction, He's granting mercy. And the third aspect of God, attribute of God that He uh, recounts in Lamentations is He says... Great is your faithfulness. The loving kindness of God and the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God. And Hebrews chapter 6 says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of His promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul. Uh, the, the, the purpose of going back to Deuteronomy and reading that is mainly to show this, that even in the midst of and it's important to see this in Israel's history and as you read through your Old Testament and as you read through your Scripture, that even in the midst of this destruction, God is actually showing Himself to be faithful to His Word. And that in itself is a great encouragement to know that God is a faithful God that can be trusted. If He said what He was going to do in Deuteronomy 28, and when that came to pass, He decided to forget about it and not bring that judgment, not bring that destruction, God would be an unfaithful God, not worthy to be trusted. But even in the midst of His discipline of His people, He's proving Himself to be faithful and trustworthy. God says in His Word that He chastens everyone that He loves. Right? He disciplines him in who his soul delights. When you or I are in a, undergoing some chastening, undergoing some, some suffering, undergoing some affliction, it is important to know that even in that, God is proving his faithfulness and his love and his mercy to you. 
Even in the darkest night of the soul, God is using the circumstances to once again prove His attributes, who He is, and that He is worthy to be trusted and hoped in and clung to in the midst of all of life's circumstances. And these are the things that Jeremiah is recalling when he has pretty much, up to this point, given up all hope. And if I could be be very honest, this is a great need in the church today, to simply know the attributes of our God that we worship. We have teaching after teaching and, and service after service about trying to pragmatically work our way through this life. And if you fa- feel some uh, uh, de- depression or if you come over here and you're undergoing some affliction, we think we can uh, maybe use some principles to, to alleviate that suffering or we can rally around people and create help groups or, or do whatever we like to do uh, in the church And it's seldom seen that people just go back to knowing who God is to be an anchor for their soul and to lift them out of the despair that they're in. Five helps to try and relieve your despair is not going to do it. You need to know God. Jesus said in John 17, I can can quote from John 17 because it's probably going to be another few years before Dana gets there. You all forget this by then. But in John 17, Jesus says, I have come to give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life in God is, in Christ's words, simply put, to know Him. My question is, is this the anchor of your soul? But when trouble comes, when despair hits your soul, when affliction comes your way, right? when your comfort, your possessions, your prosperity, or your health are all gone, if you find yourself under God's chastening hand, or if you, like me, sometimes look around at an idolatrous church, and you kind of feel the despair of your soul, and you feel like what Jeremiah says later on in Lamentations, where his eyes run down with streams of water, If you're in these circumstances, my question is, what is your soul clinging to to keep you afloat? What is your soul going to cling to 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 make it through the darkness and to bring in the light? It's in all these things that God says, you need to know who I am. You need to know the nature, the character, the attributes of the God who rules the universe. And if you do, and if you can call those to mind at any moment, your soul has an anchor and your soul has a hope that will never disappoint you. Romans 5 says that there is a hope that comes in that will never disappoint us because that God has poured out His Spirit into us poured out His Spirit and His love into us. And there is a, an anchor. And after recalling all these things to mind, I love this, this last line that we read in Lamentations. Actually, I didn't read it, but I'm going to. He says this in the next following verse. He says, The Lord is my per- portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope him. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I 
will hope in him. There's this passage at the beginning of 2 Corinthians where Paul uh, describes a, a similar a theme. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. See the similarities. Paul, in the midst of affliction, just like Jeremiah says, Basically, God has allowed all of this and God has brought us through this in order that we would not cling to anything else on this earth. That we would not cling to anything we have or possess, any talents or abilities, any successes that we've accomplished, eh, family or great marriage, all these things. We don't cling to these things. We don't trust in these things. We don't trust like Israel did and their great uh, uh, building structures and their cities and, and everything else. But God is allowing this to come into them that they would simply cling and trust and hope in God and that they would know in whom that God is that they trust. And Paul, along with David and the Psalms and along with Jeremiah, says the Lord is my portion. God's goal in all of his dealings and I believe for us this morning is to simply ask the question, can you say with an honest heart, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. If you remember, just like the Levites, when, when God was dispersing the land, and He was uh, giving it to the different tribes, He says the Levites, they are not... They don't have an inheritance here. They're not going to have a portion of this land. God says, I am their inheritance. They get me. And I've heard many preachers say an, an absolutely needed word is that the great news of the gospel is not that you get safety and security or wealth or health or prosperity or, or fixing all your marriage problems, your family problems, your financial problems. But the great news of the gospel is that you get God. And He is enough. And He is our portion. And He is our hope. And it is God's doing to work out all of your life circumstances to get your hands and my hands off of hoping and trusting and thinking that anything else is our inheritance or anything else is a lasting possession or anything else can truly be clung to that can bring us out of despair and that can bring us through affliction and can bring us out of the sorrows of life. God says, this is who I am. Merciful, compassionate, steadfast in my love for you, faithful to everything that I've said. And the question is, will you trust Him? And will you have your soul fixed on the hope of who God is? And will you pursue the knowledge of God? 
I read a little bit of a portion uh, over this week of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It is a book laid out the attributes of God. And he said at the beginning, the most important thing to any man is what his thoughts are when it comes to who God is. I want to close by kind of reading these next few verses out of of Lamentations. In chapter 3, after all of this, in verses 25 and 26, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In the midst of Jeremiah's distress, despair, and affliction, I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to trust and hope in God. I'm going to seek after God. Are you this morning, and and as you go along, seeking the knowledge of the Holy One? Basking in the attributes of who God is. And I love some of the songs that we've sung this morning because they bring out these great attributes of the great God that we serve. And do you have such a knowledge through His Word of who He is that at any moment your soul can be encouraged and lifted up by recalling to mind, this is God, this is Jehovah, this is Yahweh, this is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I pray that you do, and I pray that if you don't, have not, have not committed your life and have not trusted in the saving work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and have not come to the point of having your soul hope in Him and saying that He is my portion, and He is enough, and He is my all in all, and I pray this morning that He would, through His Spirit, bring that conviction uh, upon your soul, and that there would be a sweet relief and a joy and a song that stirs up inside of you for who He is. Would you pray with me this morning? Thank you, God, so much for all that you are and all that you do. God, we know that you are uh, high and lifted up. We know that you are uh, lofty and above all things, but we also know that you are the one who dwells with those who are contrite in spirit and and brokenhearted. And the ones that simply say, I'm not going to trust in anything else this morning but who you are. I pray that you would move us in such a way that we would be drawn to who you are and your attributes and your character and your nature, God. That that just simply to know the God of the universe would be enough to satisfy the hunger and the thirst inside of us. And that it would, with Jeremiah, be able to be something that is recalled in any despair, in any darkness, in any dungeon, that it would be that which lifts our soul up to be able to sing and worship and rejoice that You are good, that You are working all things together for our good. God, if we love You and are called according to Your purpose, that You are good to those who seek You. So Father, I thank You for Your Word, and I thank You that You don't change. I thank You that You don't change, that all that we have said this morning about You and Your love and Your mercies and Your faithfulness 
that we can have a, a rock that does not change for all of eternity. So we thank you for who you are. And would you just reveal more of that to us as we go about our days on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.